us for the first time. It's kind of a unique Sunday for us. Uh, normally, what we do here at Grace Church of the Bay Area is that if there are uh, five Sundays within one calendar month, which happens three or four times a year, we do what is called our fifth Sunday Q&A session. And basically, people submit questions and I answer them. Uh, one of the reasons we do that is because uh, we are committed at Grace Church of the Bay Area uh, to expository preaching, which means we go deep into the scriptures. We go through uh, books of the Bible, usually verse by verse, sometimes word by word, depending on the verse. And that just allows us to go deeper into the scriptures and fully understand what God has intended to tell us. Because we believe, uh, we live by the simple principle that if God has said it, we better listen and we better make sure we get it right. However, when we do that, because we will spend so much time in a book of the Bible, a lot of times there may be issues that are not addressed that you may be going through, people are uh, wondering about that are not addressed in that verse-by-verse study of that particular book or that particular verse. And so we take this time uh, three or four times a year to answer any questions, practical, theological, whatever it may be, that may be on uh, people's minds. If you are part of our church, as always, you know I'm always accessible through a phone and email to ask your questions, but this gives us an opportunity to uh, answer any questions uh, you may have that are kind of lingering in your mind. And I got a lot of great questions that were submitted. Uh, Before I get to these pre-submitted questions, I want to ask and open it up to the audience to see if anyone has any questions here. Uh, No? Uh, No questions. Probably because nobody's here. So uh, just joking there. I will go to the pre-submitted questions. We'll jump right in. The first question, what can we learn from Paul and Barnabas' disagreement in Acts? Well, if you're uh, not familiar, let me give you a little bit of background. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas were uh, co-workers on Paul's first missionary journey. They went on that together. In fact, their history goes back further than that, because if you look at Acts 9, and I'm just summarizing, you don't need to turn there. But if you go back to Acts 9, it was actually Barnabas who vouched for Paul with the other apostles because the other apostles were afraid of Paul. They were kind of skeptical because, as you know, uh, before his conversion, Paul, who was known as Saul, was actually a persecutor of Christians. And so it was Barnabas who kind of eased their fears and said, no, look, this guy is chosen by Jesus Christ himself. So jumping forward to their relationship and ministry together, on that first missionary tour, Uh, Paul and Barnabas also had with them an individual by the name of Mark. And at some point, Mark leaves them, uh, a desertion, if you will. Later on, Barnabas and Paul are talking about going on ministry again. And Barnabas says, hey, let's bring Mark with us again. Paul doesn't want to. Paul says he deserted us last time. Uh, I don't want him with us again. And this actually becomes such a big disagreement that Paul and Barnabas part ways. In Acts 15, verse 39, it actually says they had a sharp disagreement. And this shows us by the grammar that there were emotions involved, as you would imagine. What ends up happening is, uh, as I said earlier, 
Barnabas and Paul split ways. Barnabas actually takes Mark, goes, does ministry with him. Paul, without Barnabas, now goes, takes Silas and goes on on ministry with him. Aside from this, aside from what I've just told you, and you can read it yourself uh, in Acts 13 and, and through 15 and following, we don't know a lot about the disagreement. And so with that, as we should always with God's word, we need to be careful that we don't read too much into it. And that's very dangerous in a narrative like this, a a narrative being a description of a scene. There's no commands here. There's no, unlike the epistles, there's, there's nothing that Paul or God through Paul or Barnabas or anyone commands us to do or not do. And so we need to be careful we don't read into, oh, Paul was mad or or Barnabas shoved him or anything like that. That's especially tempting to do when we're trying to get something out of it. And so just at face value, uh, there's there's not much that we're told. But there are some things from what we are told that we can learn from. Um, the first thing, I believe, is that really good godly men can have disagreements. Uh, That's not reading into it. They're both godly men. The Lord used them mightily, and they had a disagreement. And so we learned that uh, in the church. Just because people have a disagreement doesn't necessarily mean someone was wrong, and it doesn't necessarily even mean that because of the disagreement, these are ungodly people. Uh, Secondly, we understand that uh, if there was sin, and when there is sin, Uh, even in in a breaking of fellowship, love and repentance should occur. Love and repentance and reconciliation should occur. And this did happen. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, Paul mentions Barnabas in a positive way. Uh, From uh, Colossians, Philemon, and 2 Timothy, we know that Mark, the, the cause of disagreement, the guy that Paul didn't want with him because of his desertion, actually once again became a close companion of Paul's. And so there was reconciliation clearly between Paul and Barnabas, as well as between Paul and Mark. And so uh, based on what I said earlier, I really don't want to go any further than that. Okay. And uh, there's always something we can learn for our own lives from these narratives. Uh, Just be careful that you don't take something that's a personal conviction and not necessarily from the Bible and Confuse it with something that is in the Bible. Okay? Uh, Question number two. This is a great question. How do I know that I am saved? How do I know that I'm a Christian? Does Scripture provide a test or a checklist? Um, Scriptures are very clear how to be saved, what it means to be saved, what you need to believe to be saved. Is there a checklist In that sense, yes. Is there a passage where it lists all the exact things you need to believe? Not, uh, no, it doesn't. Not the way, uh, if I'm understanding this question correctly, not in that way where you can just say, I need to turn to this passage and boom, 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 these three verses mean I'm saved. There are, however, verses that tell you what you need to do to be saved And those verses imply a knowledge of the things on the checklist. Now, before I confuse you anymore, let me have you turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 9 through 11. Romans chapter 10, 
verses 9 through 11. And this is a, a very a well-known passage. It's a passage that uh, you, know, you should have in your pocket uh, to be able to tell people as you're uh, sharing the gospel. Romans chapter 10, uh, verses 9 and 10, and then I'll read through 11. Say this. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That's very important. There it is. That's a promise from Scripture. Confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Verse 10. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. So verse 10 really explains why verse 9 works. And then in verse 11, for the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Okay, and then it goes on to basically say that anyone can be saved regardless of ethnicity. So let's focus on verse 9. Because in verse 9, there is an inference to what you need to know to be saved. First, confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord. So that means you do what he says. That means you are giving your life to Christ and submitting to Jesus Christ as your Lord. That kind of goes to even post-salvation. Is, is he your Lord? In other words, are you obeying him? Are you doing what he says, what he has commanded in Scripture? In other words, someone who says he has prayed a prayer or claims to be a Christian but doesn't live his life according to the scriptures, has not truly confessed with his mouth Jesus as Lord, knowing that confession from the mouth is not just lip service, but it's a true reflection of what's in the heart. And there's actually a question later that will address this better. So Jesus as Lord, are you going to submit to him and make him your Lord instead of yourself or your other God or whatever it may be? Then it goes on to say, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and you will be saved. Well, if he raised him from the dead, that means a lot. Of course, it's talking about the resurrection. But you say, well, it doesn't list the crucifixion here. It doesn't mean dying for your sins. Well, that's assumed. The assumption is that if he was raised from the dead, that he had died and that would encompass uh, all of what we know you need to believe to be saved. For example, you do need to know uh, and believe that you are a sinner, okay, and that there's a penalty for that sin, okay? Secondly, that you need to believe that Jesus died for your sins and that he was, in fact, worthy of dying for your sins. So when we say die for your sins, it doesn't just mean someone said, oh, I'm going to die for you, but it, it doesn't really matter. It doesn't take into account truly in God's eyes. When we say Jesus died for your sins, it doesn't just mean he died for your sins on the cross, but that he was worthy of paying the penalty for your sins. What that means is he was perfect, he is God, and he was 100% flesh as well as 100% God. So in other words, he was uh, the fulfillment of the sacrificial system once and for all, the perfect Lamb of God. And then, of course, that he was raised from the dead. And basically that means that God showed that he is the Savior. He is the Lord. That his penalty for, or his paying the penalty for sin 
as well as his conquering sin, his victory over death and sin was in fact real and true. He's not just a bunch of dust or bones rotting in a grave somewhere, but he is alive and risen. Okay, so uh, the checklist would be elsewhere in scripture, different sermons and acts, different places, different verses uh, in in Romans and, and in the epistles. Uh, but this is a good passage to meditate upon and to uh, read or to quote to unbelievers you're sharing the gospel with and then fill in the blanks like I just did. Again, confess Jesus as Lord. You need to make him your God. Understand you are a sinner before God because and sin is uh, what God says is sin, not the culture. Jesus died for your sins and was worthy of paying for your sins, meaning he was perfect, God in the flesh, and that he was raised from the dead. Okay, uh, a lot of other stuff. If you have time in sharing the gospel, you want to fill in, uh, but it's peripheral, peripheral. You don't need to know the name of Mary, for example, to be saved. You just need to know the facts about who Jesus is and what he did for you. All right. Uh, question number three. We have heard you speak to and about homosexuality in your messages. Can you give us a clearer and more complete picture of how we as Christians should view this subject biblically so we know how to articulate this biblical view when this topic comes up. Uh, this is, I like how this question was phrased because this is a hot topic. It is a controversial topic. Uh, it is a topic which we have been warned that if there is going to be a, a legal shutdown of churches, I'm not saying there will be, I'm saying if there is, hypothetically, people say that this may be the, the issue uh, that, that they, they get us with because it's con what we say could be considered hate speech. And the reason I like how this question was a phrase is because he says this biblical view. And that's important because I don't want to give you my view. I want to give you what God says. And I'm going to read some passages for you to, to clearly uh, explain. Firstly, so there's a few things I want you to know. Firstly, homosexuality uh, is sin. And we have to understand what we mean by that. Okay, But first, it is sin. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 9 through 10. You don't need to turn there. Let me read that for you. 1 Timothy 1, 9 through 10. Realizing the fact that that law is not made for a righteous person, but those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. So homosexuality is listed uh, in that list of sins. Romans 1. Uh, I won't read it, but Romans 1 describes the depravity of man. It describes what uh, a mankind did to basically earn the wrath of God. And in describing the depravity of man, it says that women burned in desire for one another and men, and men with men committing indecent acts. Then I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 6, and we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, 
verses 9 through 10. Give you a second to turn there. It says this, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And stop there. This is not saying that anyone who has practiced homosexuality at any time in their life cannot be saved. This is talking about those who are actively practicing it in defiance of the Lordship of Christ and refusing to repent. Because if you go on and look at verse 11, it says, such were some of you. He's speaking to believers here. Some of you were like this, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of our God. So there were people who fall in these categories that are now saved. So, so it's not like the, uh, you know, the secret sin that, can, that ensures you will never become a Christian. That's just not the case. I also want to explain that this is talking about uh, active practicing homosexuals. Because in the list that we just read in 1 Corinthians 6, it says drunkards. So someone who is just tempted to drink is not a drunk. Okay? It's someone who is actively drinking all the time. I'm talking about a biblical definition. Okay? Not a societal uh, AA type of definition. Okay? Or someone could be sober for 20 years, but if he was a drunk, he's always considered uh, an alcoholic. It's the person who is actively practicing it. So there are Christian men and women who are same-sex attracted, but are not actively pursuing and living out a homosexual lifestyle. These are not what we would call practicing homosexuals or homosexuals according to the scriptures, and you need to make that very clear, or I need to make that very clear. You need to make that clear in your minds. The second thing, the first is it is sin. We've seen that in scripture. The second thing you need to know is God defines sin, not the culture. Okay? And so as tempting as it is, we cannot condone it because it's culturally acceptable, because love is love, or we can't, uh, we can't say that other people are being hateful because they call it sin. Christians are hateful towards homosexuals when they hate homosexuals. That's hateful. But it is not hateful to tell people what God says. That is actually the most loving thing you can do. So God defines sin, not the culture. Thirdly, homosexuality is sin but it is no worse than any other sin. Now, there may be practical ramifications of different sins, right? Telling a small lie to your kids will have less practical ramifications than uh, being uh, sexually promiscuous when you have uh, uh, an STD, right? There's different practical ramifications. But the scriptures are clear. When you break the law, you break the law. So sin is sin. 
So homosexuality is no worse of a sin than any others. There are many people who think this is so, uh, frankly, especially uh, the more Christianized part of our country. They tend to think homosexuality is a greater sin. I don't know why. I don't know why if it's just more recently, uh, if it's because it's more recently accepted by society. Maybe it's because it just uh, grosses them out on an intellectual level. But sin is sin. And so we need to be careful that we don't go on this, this rampage or this crusade against homosexuality while ourselves are getting angry or contemplating divorce uh, or impatient when we're driving, you know, being selfish. Sin is sin. Okay. Fourthly, so it's sin. God defines sin, not the culture. It is no worse of a sin than any other. Fourthly, you need to love homosexuals. You need to pray for them. You need to have compassion on them. And then fifthly, which is really the same thing as loving them, preach the gospel to the unsaved. Okay? If this person claims to be uh, if uh, a Christian and they're practicing homosexuality, you need to call them to repentance. That does not necessarily mean uh, they've, they've lost their faith or whatever any more than someone who is uh, unrepented of any other sin. Of course, if it's prolonged and there is no repentance after being called out and shown God's word, then you have more reason, according to the scriptures, uh, to treat them as an unbeliever through church discipline and all that kind of stuff. But for the believer, you call them to repentance for someone who's claiming to be a Christian and you preach the gospel to the unsaved. Uh, I believe in those five points, very simple. As a bonus, I want to mention this because it's come up so much. What about the argument that they can't help it because it is genetic? Well, though it is buried by the media, there is actually no scientific proof of that. In fact, the most scientific research has shown that there is no gay gene. There is no DNA. Uh, it, it is not genetic particularly for that issue. I will say this, though. The sin of homosexuality is genetic in that all sin is genetic. It's called total depravity. We are all prone to sin. We are all born as sinners. We have all inherited a sin nature from Adam, our forefather, our ancestor. So that actually helps if you are struggling with this, though I understand uh, there is a, a propensity, uh, if you struggle with this, to be same-sex attracted. It is a, a lot more difficult than just holding your tongue and not lying. I, I, I get that. I understand that. Uh, but you have to understand that it is a sin that can be repented of. And we all have sins that we are prone to because of total depravity. It's all genetic. Okay? Question number four. Can you elaborate on the inability to lose one's salvation? What about those who are once in the faith but have strayed? That's a good question. You cannot lose your salvation. Once saved, always saved. Now the second question uh, is probably more pertinent because we probably all know somebody that we knew in the church, maybe even a pastor 
a discipler, someone who led you to Christ, who now says they're not a Christian. Well, what about those? So if you're saying, Roger, that you can't lose your salvation, then what happened to these people? Again, a principle is truth is what is in the scripture. Truth is not dictated by our experience or anyone else's experience. First, let me lay down the scripture that tells you you cannot lose your salvation. John chapter 6, verses 39 through 40. John 6, 39 through 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. If you know the Son, you will have eternal life and be raised. There's no if, ands, or buts. There's not as long as you stay the course, as long as you stick with it, as long as you don't decide to leave church. Once you're saved, you're saved. I want you to turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8, verses 38 and 39. Romans 8, 38 through 39. He says this to believers. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, not even angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is not a universal love that God has for all people. This is the love specifically in Christ Jesus, which means the love for believers. You have to remember that true salvation is not about what you have done. It is justification by faith through grace. It is God's grace. You know this. Right, You did not earn your salvation. It is completely a work of God. Then how is it that by your works or lack of works, you can lose your salvation? It just doesn't make sense. Okay, Your salvation was secure before you were even created. Okay, And that gives further proof that it's not about our works. God elected you, if you are a believer before you could even conceive of a thought, form a thought. Not talking about in the womb, I'm talking about before creation, before the earth was created. Uh, Flip back in Romans 8 to verses 29 through 31. Romans 8, 29 through 31. And here's the, here's the uh, kind of the chain of events. For those whom he foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren and and these whom he predestined, okay, those who he chose before time, he also called. That's the effectual call when you became a Christian in this lifetime. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us. So that's it. 
right? This chain of events is unbreakable. You can't lose your salvation, no matter what you do. So based on that, the scriptural evidence that you cannot lose your salvation, we have two options to biblically answer, what about those who claim they were once in the faith, but have strayed? People who call themselves Christians that are not walking with the Lord. Well, it's clear from these passages and uh, the, the deductions with logic. First is that they were never saved. Okay? If they are not saved now, and you can't lose your salvation, then they were never saved. The second option is they are saved, but they are currently in sin. They're going through a trial, they're going through a bad patch, and they're uh, saying they're renouncing their faith, but truly they haven't. They're just, whatever. For whatever reason, they're not living like a Christian. Okay? We need to be careful with the second one, because the passage we just read says that once saved, you are conformed to the image of Christ. So if someone, for a long period of time, is not being conformed to the image of Christ, is not living in sanctification, it's most likely the first one that he was never saved at all. Over and over again in the Gospels, Jesus says the true believer, which he refers to the good tree or the good branch, bears good fruit. John 15, 5, he bears much fruit. So a true believer, and it goes back to a question we had earlier, how do you know you're saved if you believe the gospel, but also you know someone's saved by their fruit. And so again, if there is a prolonged lack of fruit, and he shows himself by his actions to resemble actually a bad tree or a bad branch that bears bad fruit, chances are that person is not saved, never was saved, rather than saved but just going through a difficult time right now. Bottom line, you can't lose your salvation. On a side note, I came across a, a great article on the Gospel, Gospel Coalition talking about this very topic, and they, they refer to, they use the term deconversion. And they're talking about mostly young people, because you do see a lot of young people who either grow up in the church or make a profession of faith uh, uh, in the midst of these exciting and vibrant college ministries. Um, and then as they get older, they just reject Christ and prove that they were never saved. This is what we call deconversion. And I just want to um, read a, a kind of long quote from this article because it talks about uh, particularly among young people, the, a common factor in deconversions, and then I'll, I'll add my two cents in. Quote, The spiritual journey narrative so common among the deconverted is indicative of what was prioritized in their and so many of our church experiences. Formal doctrine was held in less esteem than an authentic spiritual experience. Doctrine was impractical. Community life was practical. Theology was for the intellectuals in the church, but the average member just needed to be loved. Doctrine was less essential for the youth 
than the need to attend a purity conference. In short, the church was largely a pragmatic, life-enhancing place to encourage individuals on their own spiritual journeys. This low view of doctrine and high view of personal spirituality is often the first step for those at the precipice of deconverting. This uh, I have seen in my own experience, uh, having done uh, college ministry uh, for almost as long as I've done uh, senior pastoral ministry now, in that there is an excitement in college ministry. There's a positive peer pressure. It's fun. It's cool. You go on outings. You play games. You, you, you just, it's, it's encouraging. There's a positive peer pressure. And then when they're outside of that body where there's that positive peer pressure, the first time they're making money, there's the allure of finances and having money. Uh, there's the allure of uh, promiscuous sexual activity or, or uh, marrying someone that they get along with who's not a believer. And so in order to pursue those things that they know the church and the scriptures uh, prohibit, they just say, well, I just can't believe in this God who would say he doesn't want me to ha be happy by just pursuing money or pursuing this relationship uh, with the same sex or opposite sex or whatever it may be. And so, you know, what happens and what this article is saying is in a lot of these church experiences, they weren't taught sound doctrine. Or if they were, they were they were said, you're young, don't worry about it if you don't understand it. And it was more about just loving them and, and having a positive experience. And so there's no true appreciation of God. Really what that does is it makes your spiritual journey, your so-called Christianity, all about you and what what I can get out of it instead of how I can serve the Lord and worship him and serve God's people, and serve the world. And of course, with that selfish attitude, you can see when you get out of a church, well, you know what most would serve me? This inclination that I was taught at this church, maybe not directly, but indirectly, is that I no longer go to church and follow Christ and do all these other things. So we need to be careful that uh, we teach sound doctrine. And he even mentions in that quote, you know, things like purity conferences and, uh, and, and things like marriage conferences and, and all these big conferences, they are, they're great, but they need to be extra. Sound doctrine, a high view of God, a, a high view of sin, if I could put it that way, meaning you understand how wicked sin is. That needs to be first and foremost. And then all those extra conferences, all those extra uh, things we do to help us deal with our sin, the externals, then only then will those things really dig into the heart. Okay. Uh, question five. Is tattooing your body sinful? No, it is not a sin. Uh, people appeal to the Old Testament law that does forbid tattoos. You understand that as believers in the New Covenant, uh, we are not under the Old Testament law, but people appealed to Leviticus 19 that forbids tattooing. There was a specific culture um, 
archaeologists, historians believe that there were uh, actually uh, tattooing was part of pagan rituals and pagan religions. And so obviously God set all these rules for Israel to be distinct um, and different than the world. Not tattooing their body was one of them. So people could say, well, in principle, then, aren't we distinct? You just got to be careful when you apply the Old Testament law to us today. Because that same chapter, so if you're going to apply Leviticus 19 to Christians today, you need to apply the whole chapter. And that same chapter says it is sinful to wear a garment made of two different fabrics. So if you are currently wearing a cotton blend or a polyester blend or something that's cotton with plastic buttons, according to Leviticus 19, you would be in sin. In fact, the verse right before the one about tattoos speaks of not cutting the hair on the sides of your heads, as you guys have seen uh, some Orthodox Jews still do this. Or it also forbids clipping the edges off, uh, clipping off the edges of your beard. Okay, and I know, uh, I know several people who have told me that they once believed that tattoos are sinful, and none of them had beards or long, you know, curls on the side of their heads. It is a gray area, but I would say this. With all gray areas, you need to ask yourself why you're doing what you're doing. You need to look at the heart. Is it beneficial? Are you doing it to honor the Lord? I have friends, pastors, who have many tattoos that I believe they did with the desire to honor the Lord. Bible verses and things like that. Okay? The question brings up a very good principle. I've talked to many people who view, feel very strongly about tattoos. Uh, they use the Bible to justify their feelings. And as I mentioned earlier, that's very dangerous. So again, it's not a sin to get a tattoo, but it is a sin to say that getting a tattoo is sin because you're adding to scripture. And that's very dangerous. It's also to sin to judge one's heart, by the way. So when you talk about, oh, those, that Christian's just doing it to show off or whatever, you're judging his heart. You're the only one in sin that I know of. And people often bring this up. Well, what about vanity and pride? Again, you're judging the heart. But if you're going to ask that question, what about vanity and pride? Well, what about your clothing, the diet you're on, your makeup, the comb that you use this morning? See, we got to be very careful that we don't use these peripheral sins and say, well, this is wrong just because you uh, don't like it. Okay? There are obviously other clear verses. You know, if you... If you are under your parents' home and they forbid you uh, from getting a tattoo, then you can't get a tattoo as a child under their home. You need to submit to your parents, things like that. Okay, But in and of itself, tattooing is not sinful unless it violates another uh, command. Number six is swearing sinful. This is less of a gray area. Uh, I clarified with the person who uh, asked this question. Uh, they were not asking about making oaths, but uh, swearing, cursing, profanity. Although profanity is culturally acceptable, and then again, even as I say that, you realize in, in many circles it's not, right, among children or whatever. Um, profanity is used for the particular purpose of being demeaning or crude. And, and I know, you know, uh, there's always the guy uh, who likes to point out faults in reasoning. Yes, there's always people who just 
are raised. They're not trying to be crude or whatever. But you know as well as I do that the reason people say it for the most part is to be demeaning or crude. Even words that are normal words, words that are used in the scriptures, depending on the context, can be profanity. The three-letter word for donkey, the word hell, uh, taking the Lord's name in vain. And the reason I say it's less of a gray area is because the Bible is clear on the usage of the tongue. Matthew 15, 18 through 19, the things that proceed out of the mouth come from the heart, and those defile the man. Defile the man. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, slanders. I would ask you, because I know there are Christians who have told me from time to time they swear. If that's you, in rare occasion, when do you swear? When you're angry, when you're upset, when you're trying to make a a, a hurtful point to someone you're swearing at. Okay? Ephesians 4.29. If you tend to memorize verses, this is a good one to memorize. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. I wanted you to turn to James 3, but we're running out of time, so I'm just going to read it. James chapter 3, verses 3 through 13. Right? Jot that down. James 3, 3 through 13. He says, if we put the bits into the horse's mouth so that they will obey us, we direct their entire body as well. Look at the ships of the sea also. Though they are so great and are driven by strong winds, are still directed by a very small rudder wherever the inclination of the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small part of the body, and yet it boasts of great things. See how great a forest is set aflame by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, the very world of iniquity. The tongue is set among our members as that which defiles the entire body and sets on fire the course of our life and is set on fire by hell. For every species of beasts and birds, of reptiles and creatures of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by the human race. But no one can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. Does a fountain send out from the same opening both fresh and bitter water? Can a fig tree, my brethren, produce olives, or a vine produce figs, nor can salt water produce fresh? Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior, his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. I do want to clarify that in verse 10, when he says uh, both blessing and cursing, he's not talking about profanity, but put downs, hurtful words. But again, if that's why you're using profanity, that includes it. And so I think um, for the sake of time, uh, cursing profanity is not something we need to be doing, uh, we shouldn't be doing. This is something even the world considers uh, bad and inappropriate uh, and, and just hurtful, okay? Uh, question number seven. Do we offer tithe 
giving, offering, through net or gross income? My ultimate answer is it doesn't matter as long as you give as an act of worship. There's a couple things about this question. It assumes that you are giving a set percentage, right? Uh, This question only matters if you're giving a a set percentage. But I want to clarify that a percentage is not commanded in Scripture. How much you give is between you and the Lord. And for those of you who don't give, I hope that convicts you rather than gives you comfort. It is between you and the Lord. That's scary. There's no biblical instruction on how much to give. Now, if you're asking the question, you may already want to revisit your heart attitude. Because if you are giving freely, as the scriptures, the New Testament commands us, sacrificially and cheerfully, you wouldn't be asking gross or net. You wouldn't be asking about percentages. You would just be saying, how much can I give in a maximum amount? So here's a couple questions for you to ask yourself. Does your giving reflect reverence to the Lord or is it out of selfishness? Do you see yourself as the owner of your finances or a steward? In other words, someone who controls that which God has given you. In other words, do you see it as your money or God's money? Now, I will say this. Most people that I know of, they give 10% of their gross income. This seems to be the standard in the church today. And it's really up to you. There is a 10% commanded to Old Old Testament Israel. But when you look at all of their giving, it really comes out to over 20%. And I know it was from gross income because a good amount of what they were giving was to pay for their their judges and their priests, which was cultural. So it was more like an income tax. So it really doesn't compare at all. So I would encourage you uh, to, if you need to give a percentage because it just helps with your budgeting, by all means do so, but check your heart. It must be sacrificially. It must be cheerful. 2 Corinthians 9, 7 through 8 talks about being a cheerful giver, not doing it grudgingly or under compulsion. And then it goes on to say, and grace is able to make all grace abound to you so that always having all sufficiency in everything, you may have an abundance for every good deed. Um, You know, I, on a personal note, I know we're on the internet, but for those of you who are members or part of Grace Church of the Bay Area, you know, I've I've kind of uh, beat this topic to death um, to the point that one of our deacons um, decided to bring it up at our last members meeting um, because there are so many actual members of our church that uh, just aren't giving uh, or they're giving uh, a very small amount. And, you know, that bothers me, not because we need the money, not because I'm trying to line my pockets, because but because it's such a a crucial part of worship. And as with all worship, I'm telling you, you are missing out on the joy of giving. You're missing out on the joy of giving. Um, And I'm speaking specifically now just to the members. One of the reasons members who don't give especially grieves me is because 
in the membership process, by your choice, we didn't trick you, you stood in front of the rest of the church and affirmed in front of the whole church that you would give in a way commiserate to how the Lord has provided for you. And when you have not, when you choose not to give, you've lied to the church. You've lied to the people that you consider your brothers and sisters in Christ in the local body. And that's something that you really need to take up with the Lord. I believe that the scriptures do not want it to get into uh, uh, unpayable debt. Obviously, in our culture, there is certain debt that makes sense and that we pay off, like mortgages and things like that. Uh, student loans is not what we're talking about. And the reality is, is uh, people who tend not to give, it's not because they're unable to. It's because they want to save that money and you go in their homes and they have all kinds of toys. Toys for themselves, toys for their kids, and it just they're not giving to the Lord or giving back to the Lord because they want to save it for themselves. And again, uh, I'm not judging. Uh, this is between you and the Lord, but there are serious issues. Money has been called the barometer of the Christian life. Again, we're out of time, but if you read Matthew 6, 19 through 24, Jesus Christ himself gives you three tests in that passage. If you are stingy with your money for yourself, it shows you from Jesus' lips that you have a depth of worldliness. In other words, you serve the master of money, not God. You lack holiness, right? It says your, your whole body is full of darkness. And you lack of depth of devotion because you're trying to serve two masters, which you can't do, which means you're serving the master uh, of money. Okay? Well, we are out of time. We had a, a, a few more questions um, that I wanted to answer, but I'll save those uh, for next time. Okay? Well, let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the insight you give us from your word, the clarity of your word that makes life so practical for us. I pray, Father, that you would just help us to practice these things, that uh, we wouldn't take our own situations and say, nope, I'm not going to do that but that we would, we would learn to be gracious from the example of Paul and Barnabas, uh, that we would uh, trust not our experience, but on your word about whether we are truly saved or not, that we would not buy into the, the, the culture and, and, and look past homosexuality, but we would love homosexualities, that we would compa have compassion on them and display the highest degree of that, which is through sharing the gospel. Father, give those of us who are in our church and listening who are believers or claim to be believers who are struggling with homosexuality the strength and the ability to repent of that. Father, help us to be liberal in giving our money away to the church, to missionaries, especially in this time of need when there are so many people who are in need of money to buy medical supplies, to feed the homeless, to keep people from dying. Help us to be sacrificial with that. Guard us against legalism, whether it's about tattoos or drinking or any other gray area, but help us to seek what is most honoring to you. Father, help us to be a people who seek the scriptures for the answers to our questions, giving you all glory and praise. 
In Jesus' name, amen.